Well, please open with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel according to Mark. Gospel according to Mark. We are picking up where we left off about two months ago in Mark chapter 12 this morning. We'll start reading in a few moments in verse, in verse 13. Well, we come now to the Word of God. You know, on a Sunday, any given Sunday, hear this clearly. Every scripture text we read and every song we sing is God's truth for us for the moment. It all connects with everything going on in the world and everything going on in our life. And don't think they're disconnected and don't tell yourself this has nothing to do with what happened this week or it has nothing to do with what's going on in my personal life. Everything has we sing and read and hear preached has everything to do with everything that's going on. But this week in particular, this text to which we come in God's providence next in our series touches in an immediate way to the moment that we're in as a nation and that we find ourselves in as Christians. We're going to slow down in this text. We're going to go slow through it. We're going to do one proper exposition this week, and then we're going to do two more over the next two weeks just to see if we can't wring this passage and more of the Bible out for all that we can on the subject, if you will, of politics. In this text this morning, Jesus talks politics. Let's read together. They said to him, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Traps. When you set a trap, you keep in mind the kind of thing you're trying to detain or destroy. I set a trap for a bunny in my backyard growing up, and it was a box that I had found in the garage, and I I inserted a a pole to hold it up, and then I threw a carrot inside, and I watched it for several days. No bunnies entered to take the carrot. If a bunny did enter to take the carrot, it very unlikely uh, would have hit that pole, but it was a good experiment in trying to trap a bunny. My trap was tuned for the kind of thing I was trying to catch, at least, maybe not to destroy. Uh, If you're trying to trap mice, that's going to require a different type of device. We're all familiar with a mouse trap and and a little piece of cheese you put on the platform. Or if you're trying to trap or kill ants, you're going to have something obviously much smaller and a certain kind of poison that might attract an ant. The traps traps are strategically and carefully designed for the kind of thing you're trying to detain or destroy. Well, in this text, we have some of Jesus' opponents striking at him with a trap that they have designed specifically for, if you will, the Messiah. This is not a mouse trap. It's a, it's a Messiah trap. 
And Jesus springs it. He is the master trap springer. And he shows us a little bit of how you spring a trap. But he doesn't just get himself out of trouble. No, he's not content to do that. He instructs us along the way in very simple ways, but deep ways. No, he's not just content to get himself out of trouble without getting others in trouble. He may get us in a bit of trouble. Certainly, he put some trouble to his opponents. Well, Jesus was fiercely, fiercely political. And one of the ways in which Jesus was fiercely political was by putting politics or the state, the government, and governing authorities in their proper place. Now, some things I'm not going to do today. Today, we're not going to develop a comprehensive political philosophy. That might involve some work historically, and I may do some of that in the the weeks ahead. But we're not developing a comprehensive political philosophy today. I won't be exploring American history. That's important for Americans to do. I won't be playing pundit on, on this person or that party or that platform that's going on around us, though that's important for us to do as citizens. I'm going to give you the truth of the word of God from the page of the scriptures. And you're going to need, as every Sunday, to do a good bit of working these things working these things out on your own. You're reasonable people. And, and if there's ever a topic that needs you know, granular application in our lives, it might be this one, depending on our role and, and even the moment in which we find ourselves. So you'll have to work this truth out. You'll also have to test it against the Word of God. I'll take us to a few places in the Bible, but you need to be rummaging around your Bible too. This isn't really a day in which we can get away with showing up and passively receiving teaching and then heading off into the rest of life to just... Do it as we did before. No, you need to have your Bible with you and you need to have your Bible open and you need to be about rummaging about your, the scriptures and testing things against the word of God like, like good Bereans and plenty of you are awfully, awfully good at that. So keep, keep it up. Jesus was fiercely political. And my prayer for us this morning is that the Lord through his word and through the spirit would make us fiercely political and and in part by helping us to put politics in its place and that Jesus would through these words put you and me in our place relative to God's work through human government. All right, so today is going to come in two parts. First, we're going to look at the story that we have on the page before us. Then I'm going to explain a bit of its significance for us this morning. So let's look at the, the story. We're going to consider an alliance. We're going to examine some bait. We're going to look at Jesus's strategy as he approaches the trap. And then we'll consider uh, the response we see on the page and the response that we, uh, we ought to have. So let's start here with, uh, with a trap. It's a trap. I decided to rewatch that little clip from Return of the Jedi this morning just to see it. It is a trap. And Jesus is being trapped here. They seek, verse 13, to trap him in his talk. That's why I called it Jesus Talks Politics, because he's going to open his mouth. And they're trying to trap him with what he's with what he's going to say. And we begin with uh, with an alliance. We see who's involved here in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So Jesus has been approached before by others of the Pharisees and things keep bouncing off of him. 
He's brilliant. He, he can't be beat. Uh, even just before this, there was this debate over his authority. Who does he think he is? He's been in the temple making a mess and threatening their authority of the religious, local religious leaders and authorities. And uh, in this case, they sent a delegation. They've sent the good guys. So they've, they've created a scenario. They've cooked this thing up in order to get him. And this alliance that we see here on the page is an unlikely alliance. It's unlikely. We've got Pharisees. Those are the religious and moral scrupulous kinds. These are the law keepers. They're proud of how well they keep the law. And we've also got the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were a puppet regime, puppet kings from Rome over the Jews, and the Jews despised them if they were Good Jews, they didn't like having Rome over them. They were a, they were a, a state within a state, and, and the Herodians were their, were their local Roman rulers. The Herodians, if the Pharisees were scrupulous morally and religiously, the, the Herodians would be unscrupulous. You remember not too long ago, we read of John the Baptist's beheading and all the shenanigans going on with Herod at that at that party, you wouldn't have been able to show the video from that party, but we've got it on the, the page in text at least. No, the Herodians weren't buttoned up like the, like the Pharisees were. If the Pharisees were law keepers and the Herodians were, were compromisers. So this is an unlikely alliance to see these two parties coming together. But it's also an unholy alliance. You see, what has united them is their common commitment to themselves. And and this is actually how legalism and licentiousness come together. It's the same problem at base. It's an abandonment of the basic authority of the word of God in service of self, one self-promotion through rule-keeping and one self-seeking through rule-breaking. And here we find that Jesus is uniting people. He's just uniting them against himself. Yes, in the church, Jesus is uniting people who would never otherwise come together. And Jesus, even outside the church, is uniting parties that would otherwise never, never come together. So here we have, here we have an alliance. It's unlikely and it's unholy. Now let's examine, let's examine the bait that they, that they set They set this trap in two steps. And you can just imagine them picking these words. How can we butter him up? That's what this is. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, I see that and I think, I want to put that on the wall so I can read that before I get into my study on and during the week or before I preach. I mean, that's a really good word. You are true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, even if you care about the people. Uh, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Well, this was absolutely, emphatically, beautifully true. I mean, Jesus was famous for this. Others would have heard this. They captured him really well. What's curious here? is that they didn't know that the true thing that they were saying was also ironic. For he would not be swayed by their appearances. And he would not be one to speak to their opinion. He didn't care about their opinion of him. 
People were coming at him from different directions, pulling on him for different things. And Jesus was truly his own man. And so there's an irony here. If they would have slowed down and thought a little more about what they're saying, they might realize that if this is a true account of Jesus, and it is, well, he might not exactly be hearing them. In other words, this little part of the trap has already failed because it's true. He's not swayed by appearances. It's a bit of irony that's hard to miss, but it's kind of funny when you think about it. So they set the bait They kiss up, they butter him up, and then they place the cheese. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So here we have a very plain, straightforward yes or no question. It's setting up what could be a second of what are four debates in the Gospel of Mark, in this section of the Gospel that we're, we're in, Jesus has confronted religious leaders in the temple, and now they're coming at him directly with topics and questions, and they're trying to corner him and to get him so that they might accuse him, so they might finish him. And here we have the second of four. And after our little slow-motion time through this passage over these few weeks, we will, we will get to the other the other debates. But in this case, they come to him with a a simple yes or no question. Beware the simple yes or no question. It is a loaded political question. It's a clever question. And just think about what would be involved here. So if Jesus answers yes, pay taxes to Caesar, with respect to the Jewish state, he's a traitor. This here is the poll tax. It was established in 6 AD. In the context of its establishment, some zealous Jews refused to pay it, refused even to touch it, or or even to use this particular coin that he'll have them get out, a denarius, that represented worship to Rome. It had Julius Caesar's picture on it. Caesar Augustus on the back, it said high priest. Caesar claimed divinity. And this was one of Rome's way of controlling their people. They had assimilated all kinds of gods into their pantheon. But Caesar was the God. And you wouldn't cross Caesar. And what Caesar said goes. This was a form of manipulation. It was a kind of religious political cult Rome was. And for many people, you know, burning incense or paying this tax was a matter of like saying the Pledge of Allegiance and your mind is turned off and it wasn't that terribly meaningful. But for the Jews, they took this stuff seriously. And there were things that Christians would not do rightly later. But in this case, there's the question of the taxes. And go figure, taxes are always controversial. Well, they're controversial here in the first century as well. Rome would delegate down. The tax collectors had to collect so much, and and then they could throw some on the top. And so that was profoundly irritating for your local Jew. But then to have this picture there was really something. Jews weren't to carve idols or engrave images, and they wouldn't even allow themselves to engrave an image of a human being or 
to touch or to behold these kinds of things, let alone God. And here Caesar claims to be God, and here's a picture of his face on the coin. And so there's a whole tribe within Jerusalem, these zealots who would refuse to pay this tax. And so you can see what's going on here. Should you pay it or not? Should we pay the tax or not? And some of these here were the Pharisees. So if Jesus says yes, well, he gets himself into trouble. Well, what if he says, what if he says no? Well, if he says no, then he's, he's a traitor against Rome. So the guy can't win. Poor Jesus. This is a tough question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not pay them? Well, that's a bit on the, the type of question. Now let's reflect on the intention of the question. The question is, let's just state the obvious. It's insincere. Now they come to him and they say, verse 14, teacher. And then they say all this stuff and they puff him up. They blow all this truth about Jesus that they don't actually believe. They are not there to learn from Jesus. I think 17 times, either in this gospel or the gospels, teacher is used. And 16 of those times, it's used to address Jesus. Jesus is a teacher. What Jesus says is, is true, and he teaches the way of God. And these are not good students. And isn't it true that sometimes we do get put questions to us from, from family or maybe from neighbors? Sometimes genuinely to sincerely to understand the things that we believe But often enough, in these relationships, even with people that we love and are close enough with, we'll get zingers and questions meant to embarrass us and to shame us. And maybe that doesn't happen to you, and that's a good thing. You can thank God that those relationships are a little bit easier, or maybe those friends who don't believe are warmer to the gospel. But but, but for those of us who do get prickly questions and cornering questions, your, your temperature can go up a little bit and it's uncomfortable and it's discouraging because you do care about your friends and loved ones and don't want there to be hostility. But this is some of what Jesus invites and the things that we believe really are incredibly unusual and even offensive, if true. These are amazing claims, the things that we, that we believe. Well, these are not good students here. These are insincere questions. And this insincerity is going to brew and brew to the point where they are lying, even insisting that Jesus refuses to let his people pay the tribute to Caesar in the tax. In Luke 23, that kind of a comment is made. They just lie bold face. No, they're not interested in in how to be faithful in following Jesus in the world, given some of these dynamics with Caesar and the tax and all of this. Maybe this would actually be a pretty fair question from an honest disciple, an inquirer, but not here. No, this is an insincere question. And you wouldn't know it on the page just by reading the, the question itself, but everything around it, of course, tells us that even Jesus himself knows that full well. We've considered an alliance. Now we've examined the bait. Now let's look at Jesus' strategy. How's he going to spring this trap? How's he going to get out of this? Some of you might remember MacGyver. I think MacGyver from the 80s and the 90s has had a reboot recently. So 
If you're younger, maybe MacGyver means the new one. I'm less familiar with it. But in any case, this guy would get himself caught in all kinds of pickles, and then he'd get out. He, I think the last one I saw, because I showed my kids a little video of real MacGyver from a long time ago on YouTube recently, and they're in a car trying to get away from somebody launching rockets at them, and he, he takes a knife and pulls some of the stuff out of the cushion that he's sitting in and he takes a pipe from the car and he crimps it and he makes a hole to light it, stuff some, I don't know how he did it, but he shot a rocket that he made in about four minutes on the screen at the car behind him and they got out. So that's MacGyver. The question is, how are you going to get away from that car pursuing you with a rocket launcher? And well, in that case, that's how you were going to get away. And so you just store that away for the next time that happens to you. Well, here's Jesus How is he going to spring this trap? I've put the question to you. It's a politically intense question. The stakes are are high. How will he get himself out of trouble here? Well, two questions he asks. The first one is rhetorical. Why put me to the test? And this one gets at their motive. It's, It's accusatory. He's accusing them of being disingenuous, which means Jesus is totally at ease here. Jesus is not buying time. He's rolling his eyes. He despises them. Why do you put me to the test? Jesus was tested in the wilderness by Satan some time ago on the first page of this gospel story. And he passed with flying colors. Jesus knows temptation. He doesn't seem to be too stressed out here. That has to throw them off a bit. Why do you put me to the test? It's like saying, you even know who I am? Of course, they know who he is, and that's part of the problem. Are you crazy? You know who I am, so why do you put me to the test? Now, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, here's the thing. The really scrupulous ones wouldn't touch or use the coin. So this has to be a little embarrassing because they're going to go ahead and get one out. (laughs) So they're trying to corner him on this issue of taxes, but of course they've got one in their pocket. There might be that going on there. I think maybe a little harder to see. So he asks for a denarius. He has a rhetorical question for him. Now he has a question of observation a very straightforward question for them. One, when he asks it, they'll know they're being led, but maybe not know where he's going with it. But how do they not answer? And they brought one and, said, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is on the coin? Whose likeness is on this coin? Well, the answer is simple. It's Caesar and his likeness. Where is he going with this? Two questions. Now he turns the trap on them. And Jesus says to them, okay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Two commands. The first command concerns Caesar, whose image is on the coin. It's Caesar's image that's on the coin. Fair enough, give it to him. 
belongs to him, give it to Caesar. So Jesus is cool with the tax. There's your answer. But give to God the things that are God's. Now he added that. He could have just endorsed the tax and then gotten out. But practically speaking, he would have created trouble for himself, as we've said. But this next thing he says adds like 15 dimensions to his comment about the taxes. It's, it's mind-blowing. So whose image is on the coin? Caesar's image? Right, give that one to Caesar. Whose image is Caesar in? Whose image is on Caesar? Whose image is on you? God's image. Give to God the things that are God's. I think we can say that's what's going on here. Jesus doesn't give us an entire political philosophy. There is more that we might appreciate Jesus having given to us. But what Jesus does give to us is truth that is true concerning human government and humankind in any age in which Christians find themselves with applications and implications in every direction for a good long way. Let's look at their response. No surprise. They marveled at him. They marveled at him. How did he do it? I mean, surely they felt cornered and caught. But it was also, I mean, just in terms of debate, it was beautiful. Even if you lost, wasn't that just amazing? Had to shake his hand. Don't know how you did that, Jesus. Well, they marveled at him. Don't miss the responses on the page of the gospel here. And then ask yourself, do you marvel at Jesus? Is he incredible to you? Consider all that Jesus went through, all these little needles that he threaded to get from here to the, to the cross, and then, and then how he flipped the cross for our good. I mean, the greatest injustice of human history, or his son of God crucified, innocent. It wasn't just an innocent man killed by the hands of the state, but it was the son of God. He was killed for his blasphemy, but it was true. Man. And then he rose from the dead. He crushed the head of the serpent and takes all our guilt away. We sung about this morning in this beautiful song we've just introduced, Forgiven. You are forgiven. That only happened because of what Jesus did. He's marvelous. Do you marvel at him this morning? Do you marvel at how brilliant he is and how careful he is and how, how cunning he even, he even is? And do you marvel at the insight that we're about to get from these words that he gave to us. Well, I hope you do. Well, we've considered the trap and we've taken a good long look at it. So now let's, let's learn from Jesus. Let's learn from Jesus. There's a lot we could learn from Jesus. You know, we're in the middle of, on the other side of, right before an election. And uh, we've been in the middle of some phase of an election for a little bit now. It's an unusual year. Sometimes you'll see that bumper sticker, Jesus 2020. Like, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> it actually doesn't quite work that way. 
but uh, we get the sentiment. I mean, it would be great to have Jesus uh, as, uh, as, our, as our president or Jesus as a senator or even our, our local mayor. I mean, whatever Jesus wants to do, that'd just be great. He can do it. We'll trust him. We'll trust him. Well, we don't have Jesus as our president. We'll have never, never have anyone quite like him. But we do have him as our high king, and he is all-knowing, and he's perfect, and he's given this to us. We have a word from, from King Jesus this morning, and he's over any, he's over any senator or any representative or any, any judge or over any ruler of this age. And we might not get everything we want for our present moment in the words that Jesus gives to us, but we can be assured that we have everything that we need for any place and any moment we might find ourselves in as Christians. This, is, this little passage does a tremendous amount of lifting in a way that you might not be able to tell if you just read through it in a moment. I just want to answer three questions in the time that we have left. Uh, what is the nature of government? What are our responsibilities with respect to government? And what should the church do right now for some advice from me? All right, what is the nature of government? I'm going to tick off a few observations that, are, that we can make from this, but that also uh, are expounded in a few other texts in the New, New Testament. In the first place, uh, human government is derived. It's a derived authority. It's a derived authority. Jesus is not a, a humanist believing that Humans are all they are. The universe is just matter and energy and force. Um, But that there is a God in heaven who has created us and to whom everyone is accountable. And human government is accountable to the God who made humans. John 19, 10 through 11. I want to read that for you just a moment. We see Jesus in a moment speaking concerning the authority that government has, where it comes from. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So the authority of the state, the authority of government is a derived authority. It is an authority that is given from God. And we just read that on Jesus's lips. We'll read it in another passage in the moment. In the world that God made, there are some different spheres of authority. There's the authority of the family in which you have Parents over children, and parents' children are to obey their parents in all things, and it might go well with them, and that's a real authority in God's real world, no matter what anyone says about it. Parents have authority over their children, and it is God's authority. Now, parents ultimately account to God for their use of their authority, but it is a real authority. There's authority in the church, elders and the congregation, and the state has its authority. The state has its authority. We'll stop right there for that. Enough to say that the authority of the state, the government, is a derived authority as Christians. We do not believe that the state has ultimate, all-encompassing authority as though it is derived from humans and stops there. It's derived. 
as it's derived from God, we also need to say that the, the authority of human government is good. It's good. It's part of God's good plan for us. We're not humanists who believe that it's a merely human thing. It accounts to no one but humans. And neither do we believe that, that government is evil in and of itself. We are not, we're pessimistic because of our belief in human sin. But we're not ultimately pessimistic. We believe that God has good purposes for us in his human government. We are not, in other words, anarchists. And Jesus was not an anarchist. In Genesis chapter 1, God has given dominion to humankind to fill the earth. And in Genesis chapter 9, which comes to us after the fall of humankind, and after the flood, it's indicated that a life shall be required for life in the case of murder. And that human beings are not to, in a personal way, to wreak vengeance on one another. No, the state, there's a place for the state, for human government. And as the Old Testament unfolds, there are some principles that we can discern for how in human terms, in human terms, justice can be executed. Government is good and it serves good purposes. I want us to read a few verses from the book of Romans. If it's easy enough for you to turn there, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 13. I want you to read with me how the Apostle Paul speaks about government specifically in relationship to God. Romans chapter 13. Consider that Paul's context was was Rome. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. And so minimally, we can say that the government is is good, and we can thank God for human government. We can thank God for traffic lights that work, and we can thank him for airline regulations, and we can thank him for meat that we eat at the local Mexican restaurant that doesn't kill us. We can thank him for all kinds of things. The list is long. And some things we, the government does are, are more difficult for us and they're good for us. And there's a lot to thank God for. I think we don't, we don't reflect often or freely enough on all of the peace and health and even long life that we enjoy on account of the role of government in our lives. And that isn't a credit to government. It's a credit to God and his plan for, for us. So we give thanks to God today for human government and for human 
governors, imperfect as all of them, as all of them are. So government is derived. Government is good. Government is also separate. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. These two things are separate, although overlapping, we might say. What Jesus is not suggesting here is that God's over some things in the universe and then, and then the government has the things that it's over and God isn't over those things. You see the brilliance of this? Jesus isn't um, uh, into theocracy. Uh, under Old Testament, the Old Covenant Israel, Israel was a, a people, a theocratic people. That is not his plan for, for the church. Jesus is not like an Islamist. In Islam, it is said that they don't even have instruction on how to live in the world as, as minority people in the places in which they find themselves because the, the vision, the spiritual vision of Islam is a, a vision in which the state and religion are one. It's a totalizing, total political vision in which Islam dominates even by means of the sword. And that explains some things. But in any case, that's not how Jesus is approaching the state here. He has separated these things we could say, even if they are not pulled entirely apart. So the Christian says, on the basis of the word of God, to the state and to ourselves and to one another, that government is derived from God's authority. It's it's good. We, we need it. It's also separate from the sphere of the, the church. And a reason for that is the state by its very nature leads and brings about its purposes by means of coercion or force or rules that are enforced. It's the nature of human government to use force and that force is good. Even in Romans 13, we'd read concerning the sword. They bear the sword. They they punish, they create laws, and they punish for the breaking of laws. And there are different kinds of punishments, and there are different kinds of laws. There's a discussion to be had of the appropriateness of certain kinds of laws. But the point here is simply to say that it is not God's plan for the world that all of human activity would be coerced. This brings us to the last thing that I want to say about the state here and that it is limited. It is limited. There are some things that are Caesar's and not everything is Caesar's. And so the church and Christians are happy to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and we will not give to Caesar what does not belong to Caesar. We give to God what is God's. No, it is not God's plan that all of human activity would fall under the rubric of the state. Jesus, in this sense, was not a statist. Jesus was for the state. The state is there to punish evil and to praise what is good to mediate between parties through courts of law and legal 
processes when there are conflicts between us and we need the state to do that. But it is not God's plan for all of human activity to be coerced or we could even say centrally planned. So Jesus is for the state. Jesus is not for statism. Statism, that is a vision of the state that sees the state as total in its power and oversight and control over the lives of the people under it. There is the natural pull of any human government into a larger and larger size and into greater and greater power. There are different spheres of responsibility and authority in the world that God made. And it is not a surprise when the state starts to slowly move into different spheres and to control different spheres and to manipulate within different spheres and to pull little strings in different spheres. And we have to be careful of this and we have to have our eyes open. We should be properly optimistic about the state and thankful to God for all of his good gifts to us and good human governments and good human governance and good human governors. And yet because of sin, we can be properly pessimistic about leaving the state to its own. Jesus's comments here are subversive. They're controversial. They're provocative. They're an, ooh, did you hear what he said? Because the coin had Caesar's head on it. And Caesar had moved into space where he didn't belong, was claiming authority over the consciences and the beliefs of people that he did not own. And Jesus is saying, give to God the things that are God's. He's going to walk away from that. The church is going to put it to work. Even the Apostle Paul's comments in the verses that we just read are interesting. Did you hear that he said the state, the government and governing authorities are God's ministers for our good as they punish evil and praise what is good? Well, what happens when they get that exactly backwards? There is a question to be explored for Christians in any time about what a lawful authority and governing authority is and when it becomes lawless authority. And part of our message as Christians to the community and to the world is this message of Jesus's concerning the limited nature of human government in God's plan. Christianity is not over the state. Jesus is over the universe. But Jesus, through his word, speaks a true word to the state. And that is that every human governor and every human government will account to God for its governance. And we can say, wrong. And it would have been right at certain moments in our own country's history to say, wrong. And for lesser magistrates, as the doctrine holds, to refuse to obey in this moment or that, as it would be in the extreme but not exclusive example of Hitler's Germany in his own rise. And our own state is beginning to require things and demand things and manipulate human behavior and communication and beliefs in ways that are alarming and should have you and I on notice. What Jesus says right here is really, really gutsy. He's totally relaxed. So let's take his lead. Let's draft behind Jesus in his own hot political moment as he says, why are you testing me? 
full of confidence. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. The government is good. We thank God for it. And give to God what's God's. Its authority is derived from God. Its authority is separate from, even subordinate to God's authority. And its authority is limited. Yes, good governments can go bad. In Acts 5.29, as we have Christians found in a state that enjoyed and had taken up too much space, that inevitably bumps up against the religious convictions and religious practice of some of the people. And Rome had an arrangement with the Jews and occupied people that they didn't have to do certain things. Christians would not enjoy that freedom, especially as they got farther away from the synagogues and were more... uh, Uh, publicly disidentified with the Jewish people. Only four chapters into the book of Acts, we've got preaching the gospel and then being told to be quiet. Shall we obey God or you? It's up for you to decide. We will obey God. And those are important words for Christians to be able to say and to be ready to say. Good government can go bad. Well, praise the Lord, our God, our triune God, is before all human government. He is bigger than all human government, and we're his. He's also better than all human government, even the best of human governments. You and I should be thankful to live where we do with so many God-fearing or otherwise just good-hearted and hardworking human governors, from local police chiefs to police officers to Governors and mayors and judges and so many others. We have so much to be thankful for. And let's give praise to God for it. I can't say that enough. But let's not forget that our God is before. He's bigger and he's better than any human governor. He's also brighter. So many things that go wrong in our age are, they go wrong because of sinister purposes. And we don't even always know where those sinister purposes are and where they're at work. And we can be too conspiratorial. I'd warn you against that. On the other hand, there's a such, I mean, there are conspiracies, right? <laughs> I mean, Satan is conspiring. And there are questions like this that come like this. And there were things moving that you can't see. I promise you, there are conspiracies. I will not promise you, you know what they are. So be careful. Be careful. Now, God is brighter. He's much brighter. Sometimes things go wrong because of conspiracies. Sometimes things go wrong between, because government is clumsy. It's made up of humans with limited insight. What happened this last week might have been a whole bunch of a lot of things. Minimally, it appears to be partly clumsy human government, unprepared for a real possibility. Don't mean even to commentate on that. I just mean to say that God is bright and he's ready for everything. He sees perfectly our designs and our motives and our actions. He knows exactly what we need and praise God he sent Jesus to solve our main problem with perfect precision through the death and resurrection of Christ, which is the one whose name we meet this morning. 
God is better, brighter, bigger, and before all these things. And don't forget any of that. All right. Well, what are our responsibilities with respect to government? What are our responsibilities with respect to government? We just need to say, in the first place, we should obey human government. Render to Caesar what Caesar's. Give it to him. He asked for it. His, his name is on it. His picture's on it. He's not divine, but give it to him. And you and I should be the best citizens there are. And we should pay our taxes. Shame on you if I could say that. If you're dishonest in your reporting of your income or in the course of working your books in your business or if you're asking people to cook numbers, I'm not suggesting there's any one way to interpret tax code at one point or a next, but you'll know if you're guilty of failing to honor God by giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. Friends, pay your taxes. Honor the emperor. Honor the president. Give revenue to who revenue is due. And give thanks to God for all the things we, we just talked about. Yeah, when, when a meal you eat doesn't kill you, you can thank God at your dinner table after the meal <laughs> for human government. Maybe you would just insert into your prayers of thanksgiving at the dinner table or the lunch table or the breakfast table periodically, maybe regularly, a particular civic leader or just a general prayer and thanks to God for his common grace to us in government. I don't know how else to, to take Jesus and God's words through Paul uh, in Romans. We can apply them that way. Now, we should be good citizens, but we have to be better citizens of heaven and even better followers of Jesus. And there are times when faithful, faithful citizenship down here is at odds with faithful citizenship of heaven. And I am afraid that the American church, although I don't like speaking so generically, it annoys me when people do that. Uh, how about I speak for myself and the people I know in our church? God gets smaller and the state gets bigger. And uh, that can look a lot of different ways come out a lot of different ways, but even as the state arrests to itself more power and more influence and, and subversively regulates more and more and more and more and more of human life, it gets bigger and we kind of say, okay, okay, that's good. Okay, yep, that's good. That's your space. You can have that. You can have that. You can have that. God gets smaller and smaller. And then one day there's an ask and we can't grant it. But we have no muscles for it. No, disobedience and civil disobedience is a part of the Christian life in a fallen world. We are, we are exiles in this world. We don't belong here. And the governments we find ourselves in, we should obey in every way we can as much as possible and disobey when necessary and be ready to. The state, the government, our governing authorities do not deserve our unbending allegiance our wholehearted affections or our, the submission of our beliefs and convictions, although they will slowly, in any place Christians find themselves, try to take those. And keep in mind that part of obeying in our own context is considering the role that somebody has. We live in a constitutional federal republic and we should be able to talk about what that means because it's within that context that our rulers get their roles. I mean, the governor can't come into my house and say, you can't have cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast today. 
I would say, who are you? (laughs) Uh, They can make other kinds of decisions. Even the president is not a king. Senators and representatives are not kings. They each have a very particular function in the system that has been set up, in the agreement that we have together, and they should fulfill it fully, and they shouldn't overstep it. And part of being a good citizen in a constitutional federal republic is playing our part to hold leaders accountable to fulfill their roles and not more. And we don't love our neighbors by giving full birth to any leader who would take any authority as if any leader is king. So just keep this in mind. In Exodus chapter 1, we've got the midwives disobeying Pharaoh at cost of their own life, fearing God and God is blessing them. In Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, we have Daniel and others obeying God instead of bowing down to a statue. And in Acts 5, as we've seen and we'll explore more in the weeks to come, we have civil disobedience as well. The church has historically spoken in terms of the state's rightful place to regulate things around worship. You know, a number of parking spaces is fine. You need so many trees, that's good. But not in worship. What we can do, what we ought to do, how we go about it. And it's important distinction to protect. It's not even one that's as fine in all of our minds or in the minds of our own leaders. And this last year has been hard for public leaders and for church leaders and leaders of all kinds. But it's a distinction we need to be careful to guard. So what do we owe the government? Well, we owe obedience as far as we can. And we owe, we owe disobedience when, when necessary. Well, and lastly, what's the church to do for now? This grows off the page. It's also just some advice from some other pages around the New Testament on this topic. And I've got a few things, five things for you. First thing, friends, let's stick with the task. Let's stick with our task. Uh, There are really bad days and years and weeks, and then there are really good days and years and weeks. There's a whole lot of things in between. Um, We can't lose focus. So any Christian who finds themselves at any part of the world, you could find yourself in a political scenario with a really bad government and this country could burn itself down and, and we'd lose this great nation, America, and our great story, humanly speaking, and we would still have a great commission and a great master. So don't forget the great commission. The priority of the church and of every Christian is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come for us, that he died and rose again. And no state can solve the problem that he came to solve. So don't forget that's more important. We give our lives for that. So stay with the task. In 1 Timothy 2, when Paul instructs us to pray for kings and rulers and people in high places, He does so so we can live a quiet life. And then he says, for God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, that's interesting. The reason why Paul is asking us to pray for rulers is so that we can get on with the work of preaching the gospel. So we don't revel in persecution. God uses it. It's also distracting. Take full advantage of the freedom that we have and defend it and hold our neighbors and our nation and our leaders to the promises that they've made and that we've agreed on together. And we are under the rule of law here, not the rule of a king. And so we are a constitution-minded people as Americans where we find ourselves as Christians. So stay, stay the task for the sake of the gospel. Second thing, set the temperature. This is related. 
You shouldn't be chilly when it comes to things politics. It's too important. It's too important. It's part of God's plan. He has purposes for the state. He's articulated them to us, and it's part of our message to the world to punish what's evil and to praise what's good. But don't get too hot either. Remember where it fits. Jesus keeps it in its place. It's interesting that Jesus says these things and then moves on. He stuck with his task. He went to a cross. He didn't give us paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs on how we're supposed to organize ourselves in terms of human government. He gave us a lot here. And neither do the apostles give us a whole lot of this. We get some of it. The context of Romans chapter 13 is after Romans 12, where we're told not to take vengeance on one another, but leave room for the wrath of God, which raises the question, so then how are things dealt with here? And human government is one of God's plans for that. Keep things in their place. Stay the task. Set the temperature. Keep your, port, your passions proportioned. Uh, stick together. Things are changing fast, friends. They're changing awfully fast in our country over the last decade, over the last year, and even over the last week. And I don't know exactly what's going on out there, frankly. And I have to get up here and talk every week. So I'm going to hold out Bible verses to you. I'm going to say true things, and we're going to sing true songs. Connect the dots. I'm connecting the dots when I sing. Don't think we're not connecting the dots as leaders. Talk amongst yourselves. But don't think we all know exactly what's going on here. Or that I'm going to be your puppet for your cause. I know what some of your causes are. No. And thank God that your pastors won't do that. We're not all going to be on the exact same page with the exact same takes on what happened this last, this last week or this last year. And maybe some things will get clear over time. We have different backgrounds. We had different parents that so many are responding to their parents' politics, it seems. We have different Levels of understanding, levels of insight, different sensibilities about what's at stake politically, about how high the stakes are, about where the stakes are with a person or with a party or with both. All those things come together to mean that we're going to see some things differently. But stick together, friends, and work hard at that. Control your tongues, please. Consider this among Jesus' band of disciples. You had Matthew or Levi, a tax collector, working for big government Rome, probably had his own thoughts. And then you had Simon, a zealot. He's the no government guy. What holds those two guys together? Jesus held them together. Don't let the state get too big. Don't let God get too small. If you go to bed at night thinking about what your friends are saying on politics, God's getting too small. Open your day with the Bible and close it with the scriptures. That'll go a long way. Seek the truth, capital T truth. Seek Jesus personally. Seek lowercase t truth. And don't think that about 25 seconds after an event happens across the country and you saw a video, you have any idea what actually was going on. Where the motives are, where the maliciousness was, what the outcome will be. Many pastors and many of you are embarrassed about some things that were said this summer in the flow of things. Make sure you are on the right side of something. Be very careful. Seek is a patience word. Seek the truth. And when you find it, be self-suspicious. There's a lot of censorship going on these days. I'm going to say it's going to get harder and harder to figure out what is going on. And it's okay just to say, I don't know what's going on. There are some things I know that are going on. 
And then you quote scripture to one another. That's what we need to be doing. There are a lot of things changing around us and under our feet. And there's a book in our hands and in our lap that is not changing and won't. And we will pick it up every week. Uh, At pain of death, we will pick this book up every week. So stay the task, set the temperature, friends, stick together, seek the truth, and sit tight. You know, Scripture says that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ and of our God. And take comfort in that. And put your head on your pillow at night with that. Wherever you live, you live in China, or whether you live here, no matter what's going on around you or what goes on around us, what kids we have or grandkids we have or great-grandkids we have or grandkids we'll never know, we can sit tight and they can sit tight if they would believe that promise that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Christ. America won't last forever. I don't know how it's going to go down. I hope it doesn't hurt. And it will hurt when it does. And it'll be sad when it does, however it does. But I can promise you that things end well and that Jesus' promises are true. And this kingdom is from shore to shore and it's forever. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us today. We thank you for your kindness to us in human government and for our nation, this nation, the United States of America and for its really beautiful story and the incredible ideas on which it was founded, echoes from the scriptures themselves and lessons learned from history, a very special thing that has happened here. and We've enjoyed much, but this nation wasn't founded by sinless people and neither is it occupied by them. And we need your help to know what faithful Christianity looks like. We thank you for the president you've given us for four years and President Trump, much to thank you for there. We pray for President-elect Biden, who will be our president soon enough, and that he would rule and lead in his role in righteousness. And we think of other senators and, and representatives. We thank you for Governor McMaster and for Rick Danner and Greer and for Knox White in Greenville and for Chris Thompson, the chief of police in Greenville. And there are so many others. We don't, we don't thank you enough for them or name them as often as we should, but you know them. We ask you for help. Help them to lead us well. Help them to do good by us. May they and we together in this experiment of self-governance here on this earth imperfectly as we will, punish what is evil and praise what is good. And may we be able to live at peace so that we might preach the gospel and so that many might be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.